0: Do you boy, hear the people boy, sing, boy, singing the song boy, of angry men? It is the music boy, of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drum, there is a life about to start to tomorrow.
1: My name is Suren Mudliar and I'm the managing editor of the journal Socialism and Democracy. Welcome to our event The 1990s to the 2020s From the Millennial Turns to the Decisive Decade. Our panel has been introduced in the opening slides. To save time I will not be introducing everyone individually. Instead our producers will be sharing information in the chat box. We intend to exploit the chat box fully tonight. That said by way of a collective introduction. For most, if not all of us, this is a personal and public moment. The social movements that we are addressing have punctuated our lives and, in many cases, structured our life choices. If the intensity of our commitments opens us to the charge that we are privileging movement actors, the conversation that follows I'm sure will show that we are also addressing broader social changes and patterns. Back in 2019, the panelists joined with other activist intellectuals to mark the 20th anniversary of the Battle of Seattle. The result was a special issue of our journal, although a year of delays displaced its final publication until January this year. Tonight, we consider the lessons from that issue. However, given that this this year is the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring, and the Wisconsin capital occupation. And also because it follows a year of mass rebellion, it is vital that we also reflect on the relationship between the movements at the millennium and the present decisive decade. Of course, another reason is that intra-elite, that is ruling class conflicts in the United States have come to assume non-institutional forms as well. Witness, for example, January 6, 2021. Our conversation is therefore structured into three parts. movements at the Millennium, which I will facilitate. Then we'll move on to the current period, which Norm Stockwell will lead. Finally, we'll have a discussion period based on the comments and questions that you share in the chat. I should add that this event is being recorded and streamed live on Facebook. If appearing in the video is a concern, please adjust your Zoom identity now and turn off your camera. I want to open part one by turning to Hilary Lazar, a union organizer, doctoral candidate, and co editor of the special issue. Hilary, what do the events of Seattle 1999 tell us about that period of struggle?
2: Thanks so much, Sarin. I'd be happy to speak to that. So the anti-WTO protests that occurred in Seattle in 99 are arguably some of the most iconic and catalytic moments of the global justice or alter globalization movement and laid the groundwork for early 21st century activism and many of the mobilizations that have come since. With somewhere between 50 to 100,000 protesters who took to the streets in opposition to the World Trade Organization, not only did this signify the first truly major US protest against corporate capitalism since the 70s, but it also signaled the emergence of a new period of struggle within the US and throughout the world. It was during Seattle when we saw critical shifts to movements and movement repertoires, including new organizational forms, techniques, frameworks, and even actors. For instance, in these protests, there was a general reorientation towards understanding local struggle as rooted in global processes. And of course, after Seattle, uh, there, the sites of the primary sites of struggle shifted to become summits of global governing bodies and multinational corporations. It was also in these protests where we we first began to rely very heavily on new digital communications, such as indie media, in terms of our emerging transnational movement building. And it was also during this convergence when autonomous and anarchist forms of organizing that valued decentralization, horizontalism, direct democracy, direct action, and prefigurative politics really came to be the dominant organizing logic of that time. So in essence, what we were seeing happening in Seattle was the ushering in of what we describe as three turns, the anarchist, the global, and the democratic that really set the pattern for mobilizations that followed, including the anti-war movement, the Wisconsin uprising, certainly the Occupy movements, and arguably even some of the aspects of today's struggles. Clearly, these terms didn't simply emerge out of of nowhere. Rather, they reflected a confluence of movement currents that were already underway. It seems safe to say, for example, that uh, there wouldn't have been a Seattle or a global justice movement without the critical inspiration of the Zapatista uprising in 94. And as John Pack points out in his personal reflections in the issue, Seattle really represented a kind of activist reunion that brought together players from across fronts of struggle, from food sovereignty to labor to even queer radical subcultures. And it was the confluence of all these different players and all these different movements and movement currents that led to an explosion of energy and vision and radical reimagining of of what was possible, uh, a kind of collective reimagining of what a more equitable and liberatory world could be. And it was this that really solidified these turns and the new directions in mobilizing that that set the tone for movements really up until the rise of Trump. And and I would argue even continue to inform organizing today. And we can talk more about that later.
1: Thank you, Hilary. As we think about then the continuities between this explosion of movements and the present threads as they are expressed, I'm wondering if Bill Bill Fletcher could introduce us to how these how the events preceding Seattle uh, are connected to broader trends in U.S. history. Bill,
3: well, it's interesting. One of the things that was, uh, I think, for many people unexpected about Seattle was the active participation of large parts of organized labor. And this was a reflection of uh, changes that were going on uh, within certain unions and within the nationally FLCIO, and particularly with the victory of John Sweeney and his team in 1995. Um, and and that ended up playing a major role uh, in the Seattle motion and a, an interesting involvement of the AFL-CIO in critiquing elements of globalization up until 9-11, uh, 2001. And I, I think that 9-11 brought to a, a screeching halt much of the work that the global justice movement had done. And, um, and it doesn't mean it all stopped. But I think it, it, it was a major derailing uh, that the movement never fully recovered. And even with the development of the anti-war movement, anti-war against Iraq, uh, there, there was a problem I think that there was also, uh, Seattle brought together such a wonderful assortment of forces that were not able to organizationally figure out how they should ultimately work together. So there was no longer term strategy. And I think that this was one of the problems throughout the entire movement, the lack of a of of a concrete strategy and a lack of a clear definition as to what victory is. Um, The victory isn't uh, thousands and thousands of people in the streets, it's something else. So what is that something else? And what's the difference between fighting for power and fighting to influence power? And, And that's one of the things that I think was revolving around uh, Seattle and and much else that was going on in that period. Thank you, Bill. You know, this theme of
1: uh, integration of movements and developing uh, mechanisms to talk with one another, make decisions, envision common goals, and, and arrive at solutions, I, I wonder about it, I wonder if it's perhaps too strong a standard for us to aspire to, and yet I, uh, I also think that if we cannot aspire to them, we are nowhere. And so between that, between those two uh, poles, I'm wondering if um, we, we, we are able to think about some of the other movements that coexisted in this time frame. I'm thinking in particular of the immigrants rights movement and Shannon Gleason's contribution to the volume as well. Shannon, what uh, do you sort of share the sense of missed opportunities?
4: Thanks, Aaron. Um I'm glad to be here. Um, I think that much of what you and Bill and Hillary have laid out um, is in many ways cyclical. I do think that there's many missed opportunities, but I also think that a lot of what we see in terms of the organizing happening is a reactive response to many of the policies that are being proposed at the national and also as we'll see uh, at the state level. And so we are at a moment right now where I think some of this reflection is really important to understand what is the strategy that in my case, uh, what I'll be talking about today is the intersection between the immigrant and labor rights movement. And so just to frame um, quickly in the time that I have, you know, where we saw the defensive approach necessarily of immigrant rights groups really starts in, in understanding what was happening in California, which was really the ground zero for what would later happen at the national level in terms of anti-immigrant sentiment. And it's important here to remember that the labor movement up until around the time of s- Seattle, was very much on the part of the nativist um, as a whole, formally on the, as a, on the part of the nativist um, push. And so I think what we saw was a push back against some of the muddy border buildup in the uh, on the Southern border, as well as in the six major immigrant destination states pushing back against the policies of folks like Governor Pete Wilson, Proposition 187, et cetera. And so you see these mass mobilizations happening in conjunction with many of the immigrant um, led unions et cetera, as well as student walkouts, a vestige of the Chicano movement of the decades prior. And this continued through to the immigrant worker freedom ride in 2003. And then what we see is a massive mobilization um, not only the after effects of 9-11 and the racialization of South Asian, in particular, immigrants, but also the attempts to um, further criminalize immigrants in 2006 after the um, proposal of the Sons Burner Bill. And so if we fast forward to today, I just want to highlight that we're in some ways in a similar position, which is even though we are in the shadow of the Trump administration, much of what the labor movement is engaged in is a defensive movement that is pushing back not only in these nativist strands of these GOP policies, but also of the democratic party um, presenting aspects of both economic and immigration reform that don't necessarily challenge sufficiently the need for worker rights. And so some of the things in the current Biden bill that I would just suggest where we would keep an eye on, what's the type of mobilization coming out of the labor movement with regards to migrant rights? One has to do with the longstanding debate about guest workers and temporary work authorization and deportation relief and concerns about what that would mean in terms of creating a permanent underclass without really challenging who benefits from those, um, those policies, even though we have a two-decade example of the bracero program, um, I think also if we think about the role that other um, more friendly or more palatable immigrant populations like those receiving humanitarian aid through temporary protected status, we just saw this through the Venezuela policy change, as well as through what's often called called upon as dreamers, um, there's a big tension between how their human capital will benefit either through these usually positively selected DACA recipients because of the eligibility criteria or what's often pointed to as the um, professional slice of the Venezuelan migrant population. And so I think here's a moment not to reify those categories, but to challenge what the framework of temporary relief without a real possibility towards um, not only permanent citizenship, but also fundamental openings into the um, welfare state um, is, I think, important. And Finally, I would just say that the Immigrants' Rights Movement has also found a real um, convenient and powerful opening with the framework of essential workers, and I think the labor movement has as well. And I think many of the journalists I've talked to recently want to know about how farm workers are essential, how restaurant workers are essential, how construction workers are essential, um, but in a very narrow way, not necessarily wanting to challenge the underlying um, framework that leads not only to the precarity in which those workers find themselves, but also the (laughs) the long-term structural changes that. Um, Provide for those migrant flows to begin with. And I think these are not questions that, as a whole, the labor movement is taking on. um, But we do see elements of more radical movements. And I would point to two. One is those engaged in global labor movements across borders. And I think others, which are engaged very much in the kind of queer youth mobilizing, happening out of the immigrant rights movement, challenging the Uh, Deservingness narratives that we see that reify these economic um, production models of rendering rights. So I'll pass it back to you, Saren.
1: Thanks, Shannon. You know, in spite of the fact that I certainly feel some trepidation in considering the the debate to come around the Biden immigration initiatives, I, I sense that we, we're in a different place than we were even in 2006 with, uh, with the sense in Brennabell, that there, that there are probably more opportunities. And to the extent that there are more opportunities, I think it's related to the fact that um, as a whole, the population has been subject to or exposed to much larger conversations about the global movements of people. In some ways, when when we discussed movements of people in the past, it tended to be about what happens when they're here. Today, I think, ironically, as a result of Trump's interventions in Central America, but also as a result of the movements as a whole, uh, there's a greater sense that there are global factors pushing people to leave their countries, denying them the right to stay in their own countries. And so there are more interesting possible conversations that, that I think, are consistent with the global conversations opened up by the Seattle moment, a a global turn, if you will. And with with that in mind, I'd like to turn to Jackie Smith, who, among other things, is deeply involved in the U.S. and World Social Forum process, which I think in some ways ties back directly to the uh, events in Seattle. Jackie, how do you see social movements as having shifted or not shifted the conversation toward a much greater global sensibility.
5: Um, Thank you, Sarin, and to all the organizers and participants in this project. It was fun to work on this paper. Um, I want to kind of reframe the question a little bit and go back to a point that Bill raised um, pointing to the the ways 9-11 impacted the momentum that that Seattle created. And I think it, Seattle really did open up some space for imagining a different world. It was really um, profound in that way. Um, and we can think about 2001 as really opening two very different possibilities for the future of the world. 2001, um, many people in the mainstream discourse will remember 9-11, um, but the other story that we, didn't tell well enough and didn't put in the forefront of the public conversation is the story of the first World Social Forum in Porto Alegre, uh, which I think was, and I still think, is the most important political development of our time. um, And and I think our movements needed to do a better job then and still need to do a better job of telling that story. But why it's important is that it opened up a possibility of thinking about a way of organizing the world without states and without a competitive economic system. Um, So it, it opened space and it created a kind of platform that allowed interactions and learning, I think, learning across movements and across people about both the structures that we're opposing and about how we can work together and when you look at all of the the research that's been done on the world social forum and, and certainly there could have been far more um, the academy has really neglected this most important political development of our time and I have said that at every single sociology conference I've attended and, and other academic conferences um, with You know, most of the people who I see there that work on this are in this meeting, so um, it's been neglected, and we can look at the structural reasons for that, but I think we have to push for changes in the academy about how we tell the story. Um, That said, I think the World Social Forum, while people debate whether it's still alive, and I myself am not following very closely what's going on in that particular space. I consider myself still involved in the World Social Forum in the sense that I'm involved, I still work with people that I met there. Um, And like today, I I was on calls with them. Um, That's what I mean by working. Um, But we also, um, I'm also involved in networks that were created out of that process. And um, I think there are some important networks that continue to shape the discourse in the United States which remains imprisoned by the state centrism of our political discourse and we have a very constrained political imagination as a result um, and, and even on the left it's, people really do have a US-centered focus on politics and on, on ideas about what the world could look like. So I think, you know, it's our job really to help push people beyond that. And I think there's some, some formations that were really nurtured through the World Social Forums over, you know, more than a decade, I guess almost two decades now of, of, uh, of um, global meetings and local and regional meetings and spaces where networks could form and ideas could coalesce and, and move globally and some important formations, I'll point to in the United States, really, um, the US activists were not as engaged in the World Social Forum as other places, and that's significant and also a result of our US centrism. But grassroots global justice was an important organization that came out of the World Social Forums and really was formed to bring low income people of color into those spaces and have dialogues. And those activists continue to be really leading a lot of the work in in the United States around radical activism and climate justice and bringing a global perspective to grassroots struggles. Um, And and so they're really important and they were leaders in the US social forum process and really the only main leader group that was bringing a global angle to those conversations, to the activists that were working there. Um, They're still around, they're still doing work and spinning off some other networks Um, around gender justice and around climate justice and um, continuing those transnational connections and global solidarity perspectives. Um, The other important kind of formations is the right to the city conversations really flourished in the world social forums and spread from Latin America where they were really strong Um, To the United States, those conversations were really important in the U.S. social forums and helped forge a housing justice movement that's important in the United States now and um, part of the movements I'm working with now is the human rights city struggles and and that's a, a growing movement that really, you know, it couldn't have taken off the way it did and globalized without the world social forums. Ideas of solidarity, economy, food sovereignty, are also ideas that came out of networks and flourished and globalized because of the world social forums. And certainly people's thinking about indigenous peoples and indigenous cultures and the ideas in those cultures that can help us break out of the state system and out of capitalism um, started to to get traction with the left movements around the world and, and now really are some of the kernels of organizing around the rights of mother earth around ideas of buen Vivir as a way of organizing society and um i could go on but i think those are some of the key things that we can point to as the the living um, continuation of the spirit of seattle and and all of the hard work that the world social forum folks um, have put into continuing the struggle and continuing our search for how we build another kind of world. Jackie, if I were to, to summarize what you've just said,
1: it, it, I feel like it, it contradicts one of your observations that you started with, which is that 9-11 truncated the, the process of the world social of the uh, of the Seattle process. And yet you've provided ample evidence of a new organizational form, the World Social Forum, as an heir to Seattle, carrying forward. Uh, the The many different threads that initially came together in seattle but um but I- I in a in a very different kind of context would would that be fair to say or no
5: i think what i'm um what I'm saying is the momentum and yeah. and certainly the the kind of resonance that these movements could have had um wasn't as as uh, powerful as it should have been and as as it could have been without um i mean 9 yeah. 11 might have there might have been something else that the right would use to to take us off that track yeah i think we've got to learn from that i guess yeah. is is the point but we still have potential and they didn't they didn't knock us off the board mm-hmm. but um we need to get back back and play with it you know take the take the reins of storytelling and, and think more about the communication of our movements.
1: To, to follow up on that point, and I, I'm going to address this to Leslie, if the Seattle model, as we've described it, understanding it in terms of decentralized direct action as a, an associated organizational forms, uh, continued, albeit through uh, the World Social Forum process, One thing that I'd like to observe about the World Social Forum process, particularly the organizations around grassroots global justice that Jackie spoke about, or the right to the city, is that these entities took organizations seriously. They took base building very seriously. They took connecting with communities extremely seriously. In some ways, uh, it it was presented as a reaction to Seattle, I'm wondering what Leslie makes of that. Is there any kind of contradiction or tension between the kind of direct action that Hillary described from Seattle and the kinds of organizational forms associated by the u s wing of the world Social forum it, um, what what do you make of that leslie
6: oh, i mean it's it's a uh... It's a good question. I think what I like about what Jackie's saying is the importance of how movements learn and grow and continue. And when you started the session with discussions of the turn, I'm like, is it a turn? Is it a continuity? Right? But what we do know about that moment was that it was, it was super eventful, super powerful, uh, and, and, and it was declared a success. And so then everybody started to pay attention to it and think about what did that mean? And then there were these critiques, right? The critiques that it was white dominated, that it was, uh, that it was kind of spectacular violence, that it was global and not local. And that, I mean, I think one of the things that I had fun working on for this, uh, for this paper, and, and I think it corresponds a bit to what Jackie's saying, is that there's been all this learning that's going on and multiple generations since Seattle You know, when we're talking about uh, the critical resistance and the anti-detention work of the immigrant rights movement or uh, the international solidarity movement in Palestine or uh, Katrina or the climate justice movement, Occupy or I I'll No More, right? All these places and up until the most recent waves around movement for Black lives have been responding to and engaging with and experimenting with the tactics that were used in Seattle, so much so that they're no longer associated with Seattle, which is actually just totally fine, right? Because what we're hoping is that it's not just about nostalgia, it's about success. It's about building movements that are better than, you know, or different or make new mistakes than the ones that came before, right? So I think that that's why it's so important for us to kind of think back what was happening there and then what are the continuities that are threading through, what can we learn and what do we still have to learn?
1: Thanks, Leslie. Uh, yeah, I, I think that focusing on the continuities and especially how they express themselves across different formations today is, is a wise starting for, uh, point for certain. I'm wondering if uh, Norm Stockwell would like to join the conversation by thinking through the point about continuities with respect, especially to the media, but also in terms of broader uh, ar- arenas of struggle. Norm?
7: Yeah, well, I mean, I think certainly the um, the media movement that grew up around C- the Seattle protests uh, is another very good example of the kind of, of building networks that really had their start internationally. And I think that's to me the most important thing in thinking about Seattle as well. You know, we talk here in the States, we talk about Seattle as being, you know, the first confrontation with globalization, but of course, you know, people in the global South had been very aware of this for years. And, the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, Seattle was the first time that people in the States woke up to it. Similarly with, um, the indie media movement, which really had, um, a lot of international um, uh, impetus and the concept of globalization from below, of taking the tools of corporate globalization and turning those around to build a people's globalization. That's really what indie media was. It was using the internet in a new way to distribute news and information, uh, you know, audio, video, and print uh, in ways that had never been done before, which is why indie media on November 30th had more hits on their website than CNN, because people understood that this was a new form of media that was actually informing people about what was going on in the streets. That movement, the indie media movement, similar to the other movements that we're talking about, went through a period of changes in the, um, you know, the 2000s, and now, in many ways, what was indie media is no more. But this new thing, which is the commercialized world of uh, social media, has kind of supplanted it in many, in many not good ways. Um, and so you see now a lot of people who were involved in indie media, they're talking about, you know, are there ways that we can make a people's Facebook to respond to uh, Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook? So those conversations are taking place, but. Um, it's very much like um, the, the uh, late great folk singer uh, Utah Phillips used to talk about uh, how the, uh, the 1960s uh, was a period when our culture was strip mined and sold back to us in commercial form. And I think the same thing can be said of what happened to the tools of indie media. You know, whereas the, the world of cable news used to say, you know, uh, we report, you decide, that has now transformed into this kind of citizen journalism, where uh, you know every uh, cable news network has its uh, Dropbox, where people can send in their personal cell phone video of a of a tornado or something. You know, so it's really using those tools that we developed in the indie media movement, but transferring them into a commercial uh, model. Um, I also want to touch for a second, if if I could on the World Social Forum because uh, I really appreciated what what Jackie said, and I I was um, attended uh, many of the World Social Forums in the uh, in the first um, uh, sixteen years of, of this decade uh, or the two thousands, um, and I think that the the World Social Forum was incredibly important in not only the idea as Jackie expressed it, of people building these um, alliances, but the things that happened in the hallways at the World Social Forum, I think were critical because that kind of interaction of people is what built lifetime alliances and relationships. And just one example of that is that the, the world protests against the beginning of the Iraq war that took place on February 15th of 2003 Largest protests of any sort globally that had ever taken place at at that date. I think the Women's March of 2017 surpassed it. But the 2003 anti Iraq War protests were organized in the hallways in Porto Alegre. That's where those ideas came from. That's where the people talked to each other. And then that went out the doors of the forum and into a global stage. And so I think that's a really important um, piece of that history to, to remember. And then, one final thing I want to say about the US social forums, because I think this is important as well. The role that the US social forums, the one in Atlanta in 2007 and the one in um, uh, Detroit in 2010, the role that they played was really introducing activists from around the United States to the breadth and depth of work that was being done in those regions that people didn't know. You know, we in the States tend to be so. Uh, centered on our own local world, you know, New Yorkers in New York, Californians in California, Midwesterners in the Midwest. And so, so many activists that went to Atlanta in 2007 that were introduced to these deep movements that have been operating in the South since the civil rights movement and continuing today, very rooted in their communities. And then again, the same thing in Detroit, where people were introduced to this city that was rebuilding itself in response to, you know, the corporate devastation that had taken place there. And, you know, people like Grace Lee Boggs that have been doing that work uh, since before, you know, many, if not all of us were born. And um, the fact that you know, those movements in that city were so well established and people in other parts of the United States knew nothing about them. So I think that these social forum gatherings were very, very important in that way in in terms of introducing activists and movements to each other. Um, One of the things I think that the forum was criticized for was the fact that people were spending so much uh, fossil fuel and resources, uh, you know, to fly, to Nairobi or fly to uh, Porto Alegre or fly to Belém. And now one of the things that maybe is coming out of um, the pandemic is things like this that we're doing today where we've come up with a whole new way of using the technology of globalization. You know, Zoom, the platform we're on right now is a corporate entity but using the technology of globalization to do this kind of organizing work across borders.
1: Thank you, Norm. You know, I also placed a a great deal of hope and still place a great deal of hope in the World Social Forum as a process. The the role that you identify for it as essentially uh, socializing parts of the left or overcoming discontinuities in in the left by re-importing the traditions of connecting with the base and that kind of thing. Uh, is an interesting irony, and um, so for for the US left to rediscover Grace Lee Boggs, they had to uh, first go international to, and then come home to Detroit. So so that that makes sense to me in a in, a, in an interesting way. It calls attention to what Ben Mansky has been calling social movement turns, and so with that, I'd like Ben to explain these concepts. What are social movement turns? and since we're talking about the world social forum if you could start with the global turn as an illustration of the concept of a turn and
8: sure well i think i if it's all right with you i'll come i'll come full around to the global and the anarchist and the democratic turn but i, I want to actually i do want to take up from this world social forum and uh, and point out that of course the transnational networks that uh, fed into the world social forum had their roots much earlier And there was a lot of cross-border organizing, particularly in North America, that was quite significant in producing Seattle throughout the 90s, throughout the 80s period uh, as well. Um, And I think, you know, what what that allows me to do is to point out that this special issue of socialism and democracy is both about Seattle and also not about Seattle, right? Uh, There was the statement earlier that Bill made uh, that we really need to be focusing on strategies for winning. But what Seattle clearly did for so many people was it made the possibility of winning seem real. It was really the first time a period, a moment of cognitive liberation, uh, you know, as Doug McAdam says, you know, in which so many people began to believe that it was possible that we could win, and not only win at the level of the nation, but win at the level of the global. Um, and, uh, and there are many good contributions, not only John Pecks, but also uh, we have Dominic Wetzel's, we have uh, A.K. Thompson's. Uh, contributions to the special issue that give the reader a sense of that. And I'll say as somebody who is uh, now in my 40s and has been in the movement uh, since I was a kid, uh, I'm constantly confronted with the fact that my students have never heard any of this history before. Uh, And so the idea that it might be possible to win, well, that seems obvious to them. But it sure as heck wasn't obvious to most of us, I think, in the 1990s. Uh, the mentality of the 90s for many younger activists was uh, sort of determined, but not optimistic, <laughs> you know. Uh, and um, so, so Seattle was meaningful, and we try to capture that in the issue, but the issue is also about these movement turns, about the broader reconstruction of the movements of the period through the conscious action of activists. Um, and that's and so in, and in, in I and I'll, I just want to pick up on something that Jackie said as well. I share Jackie's frustration with our colleagues in academia, particularly in social movement studies, who uh, you know um, I think oftentimes uh, pay too much attention to the structural and not enough to the movement building processes of activists themselves. And that's really what we center here. Uh, so, what is a movement turn? What what do we say in our introduction? A movement turn is well to get a sense of what a movement turn is. Um, you have to address several other concepts. One of those is the concept of uh, what we call movement elements. And here, essentially what we're doing is we're taking all the good work of social movement scholars in the academy to to recognize that, you know, that there are elements of movements that really matter, that that matter in terms of movement outcomes. Uh, Elements like networks and leadership cohorts and elements like material resources and tactical repertoires, elements like uh you know strategic action frames the way in which we frame an issue and contest frames these are all the things that go into making movements what they are right um and those movement elements are produced and they're produced through a process of movement building in the course of struggle and so that's a second concept is the concept of movement movement building which is a concept that activists talk about all the time we invest a lot of energy into movement building but the but academia hasn't actually dealt with movement building sufficiently yet, right? So I define and we defined in in this special issue, um, movement building as the purpose of production of movement elements for the use in future struggle. So it's forward-looking, activists are thinking about what's to come, they're trying to build a movement, they're prefiguring the movement of the future. Uh, Finally, there's this idea of dimensions of struggle, of the period of struggle, the periodization, the temporal dimensions, and the terrains of struggle, which are socio-spatial, right? Um, and, you know, if you want to read more about Gramsci and Luxembourg and how this comes in, you can read our introduction. But what I'll just say is that activists are thinking about the terrains and the times in which we are organizing and are thinking about that shapes our movement building process.
0: Okay?
8: And uh, so what does a movement turn then? So a movement turn we define as a reorientation and a reconfiguration of a broad social movement tradition, whether it's the left or the right, so a very broad tradition, around a central organizing principle, otherwise known as a paradigm,
0: okay?
8: And a turn comes about, we argue, um, in response to a sense of strategic necessity. So activists are looking at where they're coming from, where they think they're going, they're looking at the terrains on which they're organizing, and they're looking at the logics that they believe are imposed upon them, those terrains, and they sometimes think about the need to completely reorient their organizing. So back to the global turn. That's what the global turn was. It was the result of a conscious movement-building process to reorient not only the work of the individual activists who were involved, right, but of broader movements, of broader society, a turn towards the global not only for people here in the U.S., but also globally. The anarchist turn similarly was really an anti-authoritarian turn, right? That was led by anarchists, but practiced by many others. The democratic turn was a turn which said that we need to not only focus on uh, how we do democracy but we need to get others to recognize that democracy is really the problem, right? Uh, And to make democracy a goal. And that came out of a very conscious movement building process led by lots of veteran activists who came out of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, who said, we're losing and we need to change something here. So what I would just say in terms of a sense of of what those movement turns produced is, yes, they were somewhat disrupted by 9-11. I was on the steering committee for the IMF, one of the two major coalitions for IMF World Bank protests in DC, and we had to reorient to turn the demonstrations in DC for the end of September of 2001 into anti-invasion of Afghanistan protests that happened, but the movement building processes continued. And, uh, and I think that that is, you know, something we need to take some
1: lessons from. Thanks, Ben. So, you know, uh, putting it very straightforwardly, right? I went into Seattle seeing myself, at uh, still do as, a, as an old fashioned Marxist, a soci- a socialist. But um, the methods of organizing the um, strategic orientation had to take into account all these other factors of, uh, of life as an organizer at that moment. I had to be horizontal in my orientation. I had to become involved in transnational action networks without in any way diluting my Marxism. I was taking part in what we've called an anarchist turn and a democratic turn and a global turn. I wonder, and, and I'm posing this by way of transition to Norm taking over. Uh, I'm posing this question to everyone: Are we in the middle of a new turn, a socialist turn? Um, I'll start with Hillary. Should sure. Use,
2: uh,
1: uh, I,
0: yeah.
2: No, uh, I'd be happy to to uh, think through some of this with with everyone. Um, I would I would argue both yes and no, in that there's clearly been an uptick and reorientation towards and a re-embracing of socialism, socialism um, very evidently in the upsurge uh, uh, of participation in the DSA, of course, and the great amount of momentum around the Sanders campaign. And the widespread popularity around the idea of really eco socialism right there's a absolutely an understanding that underpinning so much of the movement building that we're involved in is the um, the urgency around climate collapse. Right. And so I think that we are in a midst of another type of turn uh, what what Seren is, is suggesting kind of a potentially a socialist turn, although I would say just as Sarin experienced uh, and you were just speaking to uh, during Seattle that while self identifying still as a Marxist, you were also part of this shifting orientation as other uh, movement currents were coming into play, anti-authoritarian, anarchist, democratic, global. Um, So too, even as there is this upswing upswing and reorientation to socialism, we see the elements of these other turns still at play. the area that I think about a lot of course is the anarchist turn and so it's been fascinating to watch the ways in which the two there's really kind of been a a coming together of some of the confluence of some of the frameworks um, in in this most recent period as we have seen this kind of resurgence and embracing of of socialism and particularly um, again that participation in the DSA and, and so, so just to briefly think about what, I, what I'm what i still thinking about with the anarchist turn and how it relates to the socialist turn. I mean, obviously anarchism is not the only organizing logic that uh, has influenced the 21st century by any means. Um, and, and certainly we can still see the, the resounding impact of the global and democratic turns as well. Um, But it is arguable that beginning with Seattle and the global justice movement, that many elements of anarchism that we've touched on, the horizontality, the uh, emphasis on direct democracy, uh, prefigurative politics, has really come to be a dominant uh, organizing logic. And and we can see this, we see this readily in the Occupy movements and other mobilizations of 2011, which were imbued with a kind of anarchist DNA in their emphasis, again, on this horizontalism, uh, mutual aid driven, prefigurative politics. And and even since then, it's continued to be a a potent framework. Um, The Gezi Park uprising in Turkey, the anti-austerity mobilizing in Brazil, the yellow vests in France or the umbrella movement in Hong Kong, and even um, certainly the Bookchin inspired democratic confederalism of the the Rajabin revolution. And if we think also about specific techniques, right? um, The action councils employed by uh, Black Lives Matter organizers, uh, the direct action in climate organizing, Um, And certainly anarchism has been part of the bedrock of militant anti-fascist resistance um, throughout the age of Trump. And of course, last year we literally witnessed an explosion of tens of thousands of mutual aid based projects in response to the global pandemic. Even within the DSA, there's the Libertarian Socialist Caucus, which uh, explicitly has participation by anarchists uh, and puts forth the kind of um, at least anarchist resonant platform of self determination and freedom from hierarchy, domination, coercion, and a sense of shared struggle um, rooted in mutual aid. That being said, what I find so fascinating is is that in many ways we are perhaps uh, reorienting to the original uh, language of socialism. That it is more of an umbrella term that uh, is imbued with these many different tendencies as we're taking parts, uh, the effective parts of these different currents, right? Um, And learning from one another and truly moving towards uh, finding ways to to build solidarity across these frameworks and in productive sorts of ways. And and so uh, while we clearly see this imprint of anarchism, I think it would be indisputable to say that we aren't also seeing um, an embracing of socialism Um, uh, and really the the need for revolutionary transformation um, today.
1: Hillary, on that note of a hundred socialist flowers blooming, I'd like to hand over the facilitation to Norm Stockwell. I I would want to also add, uh, by way of bowing out of the conversation, that I, I think that many of the tendencies that we saw in, in the anarchist turn were also in some ways repressed currents within Marxism itself, uh, the, the council communism of a certain period and other kinds of experiments too. And so I think that uh, the concept of a turn um, is, is certainly consistent with what you, you and Ben have described, and it allows things that are latent within the movements to also surface. Norm, do you want to take over the reins of our conversation?
7: Sure, and I think maybe I'll start by jumping back to something that um, uh, we were talking about a little bit a while ago, which is the um, the impact of 9-11 on the movements of the 2000s. And I, I was just thinking uh, when Ben talked about, um, uh, you know, the idea of um, how activists of, your generation, Ben, felt in the 1990s. I was thinking that this was, you know, a generation of people who really knew only the world under Ronald Reagan, and that that kind of influenced the worldview of where we were going. So if if people remember that period, you know, it was a time when uh, uh, there was great concern over possible nuclear annihilation. There was general sort of despondency about uh, the future. There was Margaret Thatcher saying there is no alternative, and so on. Um, now, it seems like much of the activist generation is people that have known nothing except the world since 9-11. And again, a very differently configured world than uh, uh, many activists in previous uh, decades were, were um, uh living in. And just one example of that being the fact that I believe recently we had the first U.S. soldier killed in Afghanistan who was not yet born when the war in Afghanistan began. And so that that, that kind of total transformation of society since 9-11, I think, has been just dramatic in so many ways. Similarly, the um, the repression by police, much of it uh, becoming more and more militarized through the years of the anti-globalization movement. You know, we talk about the difference between Seattle and Miami, and those were just a few years apart. And now we look at the, uh, the militarization of the police uh, repressing the Black Lives Matter protests of last summer. Uh, much of it, by the way, with uh, leftover equipment from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, where they had, uh, you know, didn't know what to do with all this stuff. And so they, uh, they began giving it to local police departments. And now you have, uh, you know, a, uh, an MRAP vehicle enforcing a, uh, uh, a pet violation in Wisconsin, a couple of years ago, you have uh, uh, one police captain that I interviewed who was talking about all these NATO riot shields that had been given to the Madison Police Department, and he didn't know what to do with them. So he sort of stacked them in the corner of his office. So this kind of militarization of the police that now as we're looking at the the wake of the um, January 6th insurrection at the Capitol where new laws are being drafted across the country to further criminalize protests, Florida being the prime example of that, but other states as well, where they're using the example of the January 6th inter- insurrection by right-wing uh, activists to criminalize protests being done by peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters. So. All of that being the groundwork in which uh, our our new world, the world of the uh, the 2020s, this decade that uh, uh, either started uh, a couple of uh, months ago or a year and a couple of months, depending on how you count it, uh, and then intertwined with all of that is the COVID pandemic, the coronavirus that uh, basically has reshaped the way that all of us can socially interact. And so, you know, it's much more difficult to have large gatherings of people or to have meetings of people to sit down together face to face and discuss an issue. Uh, One of the things that was mentioned a few minutes ago is the mutual aid groups that have emerged and mutual aid really a global phenomenon, although we hear about it mostly here in the US through our our organizations, but happening all around the world in response to both uh, the coronavirus pandemic and the um, Black Lives Matter protests, mutual aid is taking on a very important role in communities, you know, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, we saw it and now uh, amplified in the wake of the Texas Uh, power outages, and also Jackson, Mississippi. So all of that um, in terms of the groundwork of of where we are today, but then the question that is uh, before us is basically um, in this decisive decade, as we're calling it, um, what are we building on and what are we learning from, from all of these um, past movements, and I will, um, I have a couple of thoughts on that, but I'm going to toss it first to Ben, because I know you had um, some things you specifically wanted to say in this area. So we'll let you start the uh, the conversation.
8: Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll wrap up on the previous one and in between, uh, and then pick up on this one. I look forward to hearing what, what others have to say here too. Um, so you know, picking up from my last comments about uh, what a movement building analysis and an attention to movement building and activist theory and practice will get you, um, I think the relevant question for me looking forward is what are the emerging senses of the dimensions and the dynamics of the struggle uh, for the 2020s among activists on the ground in many different parts of, of life? Uh, here in the States and also in Canada, since we have many Canadians with us today, uh, and people uh, people elsewhere around the world. Um, and to answer that question with great confidence, uh, I would have to do an empirical study, which I haven't done. <laughs> uh, but I, I would, you know, that's something that I think that some of us who are social movement scholars uh, need to turn our resources to, uh, going out and, and interviewing activists in a sort of disciplined way. Um, uh, you know, looking at the work product of activists and movements today, we started to do some of that uh, with this articulation of the idea of the socialist turn uh, in, in this special issue. Um, but but there's a lot more that needs to be done. But that, but that said, uh, I can give a sense. I'm an activist too. I think about these things. Um, uh, so just in the same way that others that I might want to get uh, sort of a, a sense from, I, I have that. Um, and I'd say that we're in a moment in which the political and economic structures of this country in a world society seem to afford uh, certain possibilities, certain opportunities for major progressive um, social and economic reforms. Uh, and I think that feeds into the kind of socialist turn that we have been experiencing uh, so far, uh, a fairly moderate one, to be honest, uh, not a revolutionary one, although there is a revolutionary communist under, undercurrent to it, and, and, and the anarchist politics are coming back. Um, and, uh, but, but at the moment, there is a meeting of the minds between some sections of capital and democratic movements from below. Um, and so uh, I think if that alignment persists for a number of years, it could prove decisive. It could prove decisive in terms of setting the course for the rest of the 20s. Um, but I actually personally have a relatively low level of confidence uh, that it will persist. Let's just call it 50-50 at most. Uh, and what that means for movements is that we need to be ready for at least two sets of possibilities of, of trajectories here. Um, and these would, in, would involve a continuation of the present political situation with a very narrow margin uh, 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 that maintains and continues uh, the moderately progressive uh, structural reform agenda. So you know, that's a possibility that this could continue with a, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a bare majority Um, you know, federal state that uh, actually represents a much larger majority among the American people, right? Uh, Or we could see a return of radical minority government and nationalist reaction to power, to state power. And if that were to happen, it would precipitate a real crisis. So one thing that concerns me is that, um, of course, uh, sort of major movement players, major social movement organizations and unions tend to be much more focused on the former possibility. It's what they do, right? Um, And so that's where the resources are. And the resources for preparing for the next crisis, um, they may not be so present. It's always left to the folks on the margins (laughs) to to prepare for the next crisis and and to to be ready to to move on that. So um, that's how I'm looking forward at at the 2020s. I do think this is the the decisive decade. I think we all see that across uh, a series of movements. uh, And the climate crisis in particular shapes all of that.
7: Thank you, so um, I realized that we didn't script out the second half as uh, as thoroughly as we did the first half. And so I think it's only fair if I warn all of you the, the order in which I'm gonna call on you. And so I was thinking of, of calling on Shannon next and then going to Bill Fletcher and then to Leslie and then to Hillary and then to, um, Jackie, so if that works for all of you, that's the order I'll I'll proceed in. Um, Shannon, I wanted to talk particularly, because we haven't said that much about it, about the immigrant rights movement, particularly in the wake of Donald Trump, where we saw such excessive, um, uh, both um, uh, brutality, uh, this the, the incidents that were taking place at the border with family separation and so on, but also the very, very calculated changes in laws and uh, reorganization of of, uh, the court system and the uh, basically hollowing out of the various um, agencies that are meant to um, uh, work in this area. So I think that that kind of sets a a difficult bar for the next decade and we need to to talk about that. But before I toss it to you, I did wanna mention one other movement that we didn't talk about that I think was prominent in the 1990s and that's the sister cities movement. And I think it's really important to talk about that because the sister cities movement, which I participated in from the seventies through the the nineties and into the two thousands really transformed in many ways as a movement from being, kind of an, oh, isn't it interesting? uh, uh, These are people that are different from us, let's be friends, to a movement of solidarity in the 80s when the United States was pursuing um, uh, wars in Central America. And in fact, I I would argue and have argued that it was the connections between people in the US and people in Latin America that kept the United States from being more uh, active militarily in that region than it was. Um, but then, now in the in the 2000s, that movement transformed again into being linking organized groups of people to work together on uh, social change. And so, it, it's an interesting lesson that I think we didn't haven't talked about as much in this group, but is worth throwing into the conversation. Um, but that's fine, I want to toss it to you, Shannon, to talk about uh, immigrant rights in the 2020s.
4: Thanks, Norman. Um, I think on on this point, I think you're correct that there was a particular brutality um, of the Trump administration, but this is an important moment, I think, to identify a few of the continuities that emerged not only from Democratic administrations prior, but currently as well. Kids are still in cages. Workplace enforcement is still the primary mechanism of interior um, ICE raids. Uh, Detention release actually is happening under the new administration slowly, largely because of litigation around um, COVID conditions, but very slowly. And the individuals who are not really being impacted are still the widespread criminal bars that remain in place and this um, formulation of many immigrants as, as criminals. And so I think that it is important to think about the Trump administration, the way it laid bare many of the Mechanisms of state terror, but in some ways, I fear that the Trump administration has become somewhat of a distraction to the underlying, um, perhaps more benign, um, but also insidious, in some ways effective um, ways in which the state, as we sanction it um, under the Democratic Party, continues to promote not only policies that are displacing individuals. One of the things that we talk about in the article is the The tension between the right to migrate and the right to stay home. Um, We are still engaged in militarism that creates droves of refugees as well as free trade um, agreements that will also create exodus of economically um, impoverished folks. Um, And I also think that the interesting intersection for the labor movement right now, and this is something that I know Bill has talked on in in other um, places, but what is the role of the labor movement writ large when it comes to organizing and representing arms of uh, the carceral state? So the police unions, the ICE unions, the uh, Customs and Border Patrol unions, all of them um, have very much looked to the labor movement as a shield for many of their ongoing uh, support for um, a stronger enforcement-based immigration regime. And that we think we can see is true also for correctional unions um, more broadly. And I think the argument is that the current attempts to criticize that that arm um, is union busting. And also in in some cases, uh, the claim is that it's uh, an issue of occupational health to not defend the border with full rigor. So I think the labor movement, as it grapples with what to do with racist policing, um, far you know far and above whether or not an individual police officer or ICE officer or Customs and Border Patrol officer, many of whom are Latino themselves, especially on the southern border, are racist. I think the structural underpinnings of those institutions um, pose a quandary for organized labor. Um, and similarly, the building trades have long held, even before Trump, that the border wall is fine as long as it's union-made. And so... I think that I agree that the Trump administration um, coming and going illuminates some really important um, fissures um, for how we might go about creating state policies that will um, elevate the rights of of immigrant workers in particular, but I I do see it somewhat as a distraction. And I think we see this across a number of different issue arenas and the demobilizing effects of now a transition to the Biden administration. So I would say stay vigilant. Um, and we see this again um, in many places throughout the evolution of immigrant rates policies, kind of a large mobilization across, around CIR. We see this right now with the Biden bill and then a, a, an acceptance that the, the whole enchilada is not going to be accepted. And so being willing to make concessions to, for peeling off different pieces of it that require um, some negotiation, but also some demobilizing in terms of the basic um, tenets of not only a human rights approach to, to immigrants, but also a workers' rights approach. And so, I don't know, it'll be interesting, but I am disheartened somewhat by our, our looking away <laughs> at the current ills of what is in many ways same, much of the same from previous administrations.
8: Thank you. Um,
7: Bill, you have, have witnessed uh, as I have the, uh, 40 plus year attack on organized labor in this country, beginning with Ronald Reagan's uh, uh, firing of the PATCO workers, but really being amplified in the 2010s with the, uh, uh, in part organized by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council and, and uh, uh, their politician president. Uh, uh, subservience like Scott Walker in Wisconsin, the attempt to totally uh, dismantle, or I think, I think at one point, uh, Walker or one of his people even used the word defang the labor movement. And yet at the same time, we're seeing some uh, amazing new things, the Amazon workers organizing in Alabama, the fight for 15 and so on where are we at today in terms of uh, the labor movement and where do we move forward in the 2020s? Um, i trying
3: to figure out how to answer that. Um, I, I guess I wanna preface it by saying that one of the things that this discussion uh, highlights is that there is no such thing as a left strategy. Uh, There will be left strategies um, because in listening to some of the discussions, we're like all over the place and uh, and are really summing up the moment in very different ways. Um, And and so, so for me, the question of fighting for power, is central and that means organization and it means um, alliances. Some of them are gonna be very nasty alliances, Um, but that we're in a race against time, against uh, not only the forces of environmental catastrophe but um, a global right-wing populist movement within which there's a neo-fascist core that is armed. And in that sense, I would uh, disagree with some of what has been said, that while obviously there's definitely continuities that we've seen from regime or administration to administration, there was something very insidious about the Trump era uh, that was very different. It was very different from even the George W. Bush era. that, that the monster has been unleashed, a monster that the Republican establishment really thought that they could control, and they can't. And it is a strategic challenge for progressive forces. Um, I think it's, it's fascinating, um, and this is going beyond your question, Norman, but forgive me, um, I think it was fascinating that much of the left up until late August or up until maybe Labor Day weekend really thought that the election was between Biden and Trump and, and didn't realize that the election was not. It was basically that there was a massive right-wing populist movement that was out there that has an armed wing that was, uh, had a very different idea about the direction of the country. Um, there, were, there were many forces on the left that up until September did not think that a coup or an otherwise uh, Trump derailment was possible. They, they thought that it was a paranoid delusion by those of us that wanted to cave into the Democratic Party only to see January 6th, only to see November 3rd of January 6th. So I think one of the things that's really important in this discussion is to identify we are not in unity, that there are unities and there are some significant differences that have strategic implications. And it's really important that we don't try to cover over those. Um, The Second thing in terms of your specific question about organized labor is that organized labor has remained in a complete rut. Uh, That the split that took place in AFL-CIO in 2005 was an unprincipled split that uh, was not really over strategy um, and did not bring organized labor out of its fundamental uh, crisis, a crisis which I continue to argue is rooted in the trade unionism of Samuel Gompers, uh, that the majority of the movement continues to hold on to. And, and this is going full circle to this issue of power. That, that the question for the movement, for the labor movement, or the trade union movement, is to what extent it can actually see itself as engaged in a fight with other social justice forces uh, for power, for uh, governing power, uh, for um, for 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 developing strategies in the different states and ultimately nationally that challenges uh not only neoliberalism which is itself right now in, in crisis but uh challenges the neo confederacy that has emerged um and and ultimately challenge the green capitalists which i think are the other force in capital that is actually battling neoliberalism and sees itself as posing a new form of accumulation. Um, And so what does that mean for uh, the workers' movement and other oppressed strata? So those are some of the things that I think that we've got to grapple with. And within the trade union movement, there is um, an immense amount of nostalgia and, uh, and there is a continuing hope that, by relying on the right Democrat, that things will be corrected, as opposed to becoming a real force for emancipation. That is, labor being a real force for emancipation.
8: Okay, thank you.
7: Um, I'm going to go to uh, Leslie now, and uh, in particular, uh, Occupy was brought up a couple of times, and and Occupy, you know, had a had a. a I guess uh, an interesting but somewhat short-lived history in the uh, in the first half of the 2010s. But in many ways, Occupy is kind of the the basis on which a lot of these mutual aid networks have been built that are um, now surfacing in response, as we mentioned, to uh, to COVID, to various natural disasters, and also. Uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests of the last summer. So I wonder if you could take that sort of as a starting point and kind of talk about um, work uh, in response to um, uh, poverty, capitalism, uh, the renters um, strikes movements and so on that we're seeing growing up now in in the last year or so.
6: All right, you give me you give me a big open door there. I appreciate the big open door because I was listening to Bill and I was thinking, okay, so what do I do with this Because you know the Canadian context is a little bit different, but I think what it tells us is that even with a you know a pretty boy liberal Democrat, you haven't solved your problems, you've still got a rising right that we have to be aware of and deal with on the street. But I do think that it is an interesting moment whether you're in you know one version or another. Of Canada and the U.S. In that, um, the system is very uncertain, right? Authorities and elites are very—they're—they're—they're um, uh, they're, they're insecure, right? Because clearly the system's not working, and you've got a COVID moment where people are trying to solve problems using models like from Occupy, but they have, obviously they go back much further. So you've got mutual aid stuff. You've also got, yeah, as people are talking about this. Um, big movements of maybe not kind of the trade union uh, infrastructure, but workers demanding what they need, you know, whether it's sick days or PPE or whatever, that was definitely a period at the beginning. And then you've got this big movement around evictions and encampment support uh, and red strikes, something that we wouldn't have necessarily seen as on the table and this in the way that we do, you know, couple of years ago and that's friggin' exciting right and that comes back to some of the stuff Jackie's talking about in the right to the city and I think there is um there's some space there but it's like how do you take that to the next level right Uh, I mean my main uh, activist work is with an anti-poverty organization and we were wrestling with the fact that there's a lot of folks who want to come out and support the encampments which is fantastic but how do you turn that into a movement that goes beyond that uh, and not just in the sense that we're going to build our own housing, because that's just not going to go so well, right? Like <laughs> in the long term, we need something on a much bigger scale. We need social housing. We need, you know, cooperative housing. We need to decommodify housing. And I think that there's a um, some interesting work, just to throw this in here, though it's not very clean, is just like, I think there's a lot of discussion about kind of abolition and abolitionist movements and abolished ways of thinking about you know where could how could we really think outside the box not go back to the old models but um, create something that's really going to work for people that's going to work for the planet and i'm i'm a bit concerned about the what how covid has kind of derailed the climate justice movement as well in the part of this hopefully somebody else can get us back on track with that
7: okay thank you um hillary i want to ask you to talk a little bit about um uh, the movements as you see them, uh, it's something that you're that you're studying and and so on. And particularly, as, uh, as Leslie mentions, uh, the climate justice movement, which is something that uh, I think all of us on the call will agree is an existential crisis for uh, uh, the planet. And yet, we none of us have really talked about it much this evening so far.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And as I was touching on before, really kind of the urgency of climate collapse is underpinning um, kind of the urgency of all of our movements and really speaks to something else that I think needs to be foregrounded as we look forward to the future in terms of thinking about what we need to be doing to be building successful, strong movements that can truly confront the many daunting challenges that we're we're facing. And that's the idea of the ways in which the many systems of oppression and domination are interrelated. We can't talk about the climate uh, collapse and climate justice without infusing it with an understanding of the ways in which it disproportionately impacts um, communities of color, or um, communities uh, that are um, uh, impoverished communities, right? Um, there's no way to talk about uh, any one of these movement areas that we're involved in without seeing the uh, the ways in which they are absolutely bounded to one another, and uh, and this includes, of course, climate collapse, which is uh, you know a Terrifying and absolutely of the most critical urgency, Um, and so it seems clear that while we're still battling much of what we were uh, facing at the turn of the millennium, crippling impact of neoliberal policies that so many of us are touching on here and global capitalism, which is only deepened. Again, the pending climate collapse, um, and and certainly uh, the. Violent attack on democracy under Trump. Um, all of this uh, is kind of intense in this intense moment of crisis right now. But, but something that has shifted um, that relates to this notion of interlocking oppression as well is that, is that we are really ever more aware of the need to confront white supremacy, fascism, anti blackness,
5: colonialism,
2: and heteropatriarchy head on. And we need to be doing it from a framework of understanding again, how these dynamics are interrelated and that we can't tackle them unless we uh, confront the very premise of hierarchical domination to begin with. Uh, And certainly in these last handful of years, intersectional analysis rooted in black feminist thought has become a kind of a household concept and in some ways has been appropriated and misused as an analytical tool. Um, But that idea of shared struggle and interdependence of our liberation is going to be absolutely essential uh, if we're actually going to build these strong, successful movements that can confront the many-headed hydra of domination um, and and work towards a truly liberatory world. So I think Bill is absolutely right that we are not all on the same page here. but, but the thing that we need moving forward is to see that, that we're going to have to find ways to truly build deep solidarity and to find a way to, to talk across struggle and to see that until we're all uh, in it together, um, that there's no way for us to, to beat these things, uh, including climate collapse and the endurance of global capitalism.
7: Thank you. Um, Speaking of um, this idea of speaking across movements, but also across continents. um, I'm going to go to Jackie next. And I want to preface this by saying that, uh, you know, in I I heard a conversation um, recently where somebody was talking about um, the COVID pandemic as having ripped the bandaid off of the cancer that is racism in American society. And that's absolutely correct. But translate that up to the global scale, where the COVID pandemic has also stripped away any pretense of, um, you know, the the modern global world as as, uh, the neoliberal uh, uh, economists like to talk about it, that the stark differences in, um, in poverty and in human rights in uh, access to resources across the globe have been shown dramatically. And yet also in some ways moments of solidarity have come out of this pandemic. And so this is where uh, Jackie, I'd like you to talk particularly about um, transnational uh, struggles and the possibilities of, uh, of movements in this coming decade.
5: Thanks, Norman. And um, I guess I want to get us out of this um, despairing (laughs) um, stream of consciousness and and see if I can focus on um, some hopeful strands. And the way I'm increasingly thinking about our work is uh, and about movements. And again, I think what I'm saying is really reflecting a lot of the movement knowledge that I've been able to absorb through being in movements and doing this work and trying to figure out how we need to uh, change, you know, what we need to do to change the world. Um, so it's it's really this movement learning and movement building work that's informing what I'm thinking. And um, some of the analysts of of economic globalization talk about neoliberalism as a global project. And in my work, I've tried to kind of Use that angle to talk about movement building work as, as a project of putting forward a different vision of organizing the world. And some of the lessons I got from working with the World Social Forum process is um, both the attention to some of the themes that, that Hillary was pointing out of the intersecting oppressions and really this the World Social Forum focused on opposition to neoliberalism and opposition. Up- Position to all forms of hierarchy. And I think that was important and it really was important in so many of the struggles that took place in those spaces over many years. And I think the feminists in the World Social Forum were really important in helping us learn uh, through those differences. And so that's shaping my thinking. Um, but another lesson I saw there was the language of human rights was really interesting to observe in those spaces and, and see how people were using it to bring people together across movements and to understand their struggles. And it was interesting being, um, you know, going from the World Social Forum's to the US and to the, in the, being in the academy where there's a lot of um, really narrow understandings of human rights as a, a formal and legalistic and even imperialist mode, but I would go to the forums and hear, you know, grassroots activists calling for human rights and dignity. And so, so, um, so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about human rights as a possible project. And I'm more and more convinced that this, is, this makes sense. And the human rights cities movement has been about um, trying to figure out how we organize cities and communities the way they need to be to help people thrive. And, and using human rights not as, as, uh, not in terms of the legal code, but human rights as, as uh, articulated through our struggles and through our needs. And, and there's a, the idea of people-centered human rights that Ajamo Baraka has, has written about um, is the, the framework that's, that's used. And he, so human rights is, is a, a, a tool for uniting movements and for kind of focusing us on a project. And we don't have a sense of what a human rights city looks like and so i've been trying to do this in pittsburgh and figure it out and know, none of us really have know what it looks like but it would look a lot better than what we have and so and we so what it this framework or project does is it helps us figure out how do we build the structures we need both locally but also higher up at the state national and international levels to do that. And, and so it's, what it's done is build a lot of connections trans-locally and more the language in the movements is not transnational, it's about trans-local connections. So we're connecting across cities and sharing ideas and models and building solidarity across cities. But just today we were at a briefing um, with the UN Human Rights Council to get our local activists uh, a little bit more informed about the possibilities for using international human rights law in our local struggles, and and it was it's, it's fascinating what's happening because we're involving actual actually local governments in some different ways, and and we had some local government officials at this UN briefing, and and really you know using human rights language to ask for international support for um, pressure on the U.S. government to make it easier for them to do their work to protect human rights in their communities. So um, I think it's helpful if we try to think about a project that the left can coalesce around that's building a world that people need that can help people thrive. Um, a lot of movements have articulated human rights as a language that's helpful and, and human rights as a, a dynamic language that, uh, that is responsive to the ways people articulate it in struggle. Um, but so that's been promising, and I'm I'm very hopeful, and I devote a lot of energy to trying to make it happen, and I think we're seeing some real strides in in that work. Again, because of the work of past movements, and the connections that are happening across generations of activists, and um, there's some real new energy um, coming with um, in reaction to to Trump and and COVID in U.S. communities. So the 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 U.S. exceptionalism, I think, is, is starting to be less of an obstacle for bringing U.S. folks into this project, but it's certainly a global one, and it started in the South, and so we're kind of late to the game in the United States, but, but learning a lot through these trans-local connections.
7: So um, we're just about at the point where we're going to start taking questions, but I want to um, uh, in order to transition to that, I want to try and see if I can set up a system that will make sense. So people that want to ask a question live on mic, type it into the chat to me if you want, or you can type it to everybody um, and say, you know, I want to answer or I want to speak to whatever. And I will try to call on you in order and you'll unmute your microphone, speak, and then mute your microphone again. Um In order to give you a chance to do that though, I'm gonna first toss it to uh, Saren to speak a little bit about um, uh, what we've been talking about so far. And then I'm gonna let Ben ask the first question.
1: Thanks, Norman. You know, uh, I'd like to follow on the point that Jackie just made, think about the projects, but I'd like to do so by using the urgency and the scale that Bill introduced to the conversation as a way to discipline my response, right? So the urgency and scale were in response to the fact of climate breakdown and the rise of authoritarian populist projects, not only in the United States, but globally. And so and he, specifically in response to those twin threats, Bill bemoaned our relative lack of organization or the lack of an organization with the capacity to form strategy to address those crises. And so the way I'd like to address that is by looking at where I think most of us were 20 years ago uh, at the time of the Iraq war. In the anti-war movement, we were bemoaning the, the fact that there was this huge donut hole. There were people from the 60s and people from the Um, A a much younger generation involved in the struggle, but uh, people from the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s generally were not involved in that movement. There there was a donut hole. We were bemoaning the racial segregation of our movements, the the fact that the anti-war movement seemed so monochrome. We were also bemoaning with, uh, I think, considerable uh, justification, the organizational fragmentation of the period. We had many different uh, anti-war formations, uh, uh, each uh, of them relative fronts for different kinds of political projects. We were also bemoaning, you know, 20 years ago, the absence of people with training to do door-to-door canvassing and organizing work. You know, they, they tended to be isolated to a few base building projects here, there, but not really. A cadre of people. We imagined that the civil rights movement had such a cadre and we lacked it. Today at the you know at the end of the Trump administration, we, we saw not only one of the largest uprisings in in this country's history, perhaps globally, but also that it was a very multiracial uprising, once cutting across many different uh, layers and groups having been on those streets myself, behind a mosque, afraid afraid of ca- catching COVID, I, w- I was also pleasantly surprised to see that any perception of a donut hole was gone. Even old folks were on the streets with me. And so there was a multi-generational, in addition to a multiracial dimension to the folks on the streets. When we look at um, the organizational debates that are happening around traditional issues that have bedeviled us, such as the uh, notorious race-class debate, right? I think that we haven't come anywhere close to resolving them, but we are actually carrying out conversations now within the same organizations about this topic, rather than uh, sniping at each other across organizational lines. I think that this is a movement forward, too. We also have what is probably the largest single membership organization that the left has ever seen um, in in this country. DSA with approaching, you know, a, a more than eighty thousand, approaching hundred thousand members. That's a nice problem to have when you look at the debates that are going on within DSA, the its own questions and challenges around organization across different caucuses. These are interesting problems to have, which which in in trying to resolve them, perhaps we will create the organizational um, framework with which to address the problem of strategy that Bill is talking about. I think that among the organizational problems that entities like DSA are having is how do they relate to the long-standing movement building projects that Jackie Smith mentioned, right? How do they relate to the right to the city movement? How does their work on anti-evictions relate to, say, the right to keep people in their homes? How does it relate to the community land trust movement? Again, these are great problems to have, and they're great to have right now because we have an organizational framework that is both national and local that potentially could address it. Uh, Even though I'm placing a lot of hope now in DSA in particular, I should say that the Party for Socialism and Liberation and Socialist Alternative, as well as other ones, have also experienced a certain uh, rejuvenation, a literal rejuvenation, as it were. Uh, And even though they embrace what might be considered, uh, you know, old, perhaps even outdated organizational forms, namely the Leninist Party structure they are nonetheless interacting with all the turns that we had previously discerned. So I think that the movement building problems that organizations like DSA and all have right now, the diversity of organizational forms, including the existence of a massive network of uh, mutual aid organizations, all of these are good problems to have in uh, and go a long way toward creating the framework that we can start to answer the questions that Bill raised with climate breakdown and authoritarian populism. I'll just close this comment by saying, I noticed on uh, Leslie Wood's Twitter feed that she describes herself as the Pollyanna. I think a little bit of that is rubbed off on me.
7: Well, thank you. And and uh, I, I just want to address the one thing you said about uh, not having the trained uh, uh, cadre of people to knock doors and, and so on. That in part stems from what I was Uh, when I introduced Bill and talking about this uh, 40 year attack conscious attack uh, by the right on the labor movement. And yet, in spite of that, there was a very, very strong uh, labor activist presence in the lead up to the uh, November 2020 election, particularly SEIU members that were uh, that were organizing and knocking doors, along with, of course, the uh, the tremendous work that went on in the state of Georgia. Um, But using that as um, a kind of a way to transition back to Ben for a second. Ben, can you briefly mention the Earth Day to May Day uh, organizing that's going on and then ask your question after that?
8: Sure, sure. I will mention that. Um, so I, I made a, I put a comment in the, in the chat that there was uh, emerging last year sort of a third wave of Earth Day to May Day organizing. The first wave started in Wisconsin, went on for 10 years and actually prefigured the Wisconsin Uprising, the networks that were built, the understandings that were built through this environmental community, labor, farm, youth alliance, uh, made the Wisconsin Uprising possible in many ways. And then we had a second wave in 2013 to 2017 that laid the groundwork for the global climate strikes. And that's what it was intended to do, but was really promising last year was that uh, you had unions, so United Electrical Workers, National Nurses United, UNIFOR joining with Sunrise, joining with community organizations, immigrant rights group groups, and organizing a third wave of Earth Day to May Day. That got, it happened, but it obviously got moved online because of the pandemic, but it's happening again. So, so I just put a comment saying, look for Earth Day to May Day uh, announcements in the coming weeks, because that coalition is being built for the long haul. And I think that work, led by uh, folks with Warehouse Workers for Justice, uh, based out of Chicago, who are working on the front lines and day in day out where they uh, are not only doing that uh, sort of frontline organizing with essential workers, but they're also putting time into the climate crisis is based in a recognition that we are dealing with a decisive decade that that there is a question of strategic necessity that is present here And that is one of our great advantages now, right? Uh, That is one of our great advantages now that I think that sense of of strategic necessity is present across many different sectors and many different movements. The question that I will sort of pose here, and Sarin was starting, uh, actually I wouldn't just say starting, he was starting to fill it out (laughs) in great depth, is um, given that there is this sense of strategic necessity, what is our duty as scholars in the academy scholars were based in movements and communities sometimes we are both to the movements of today and the emerging movements to help them and us get an account of the elements of the movements that are present but maybe not visible right um that's what i have argued and then we argued in our introduction is a benefit from a movement building analysis is that by interrogating activists who've been involved for a long time, you can make visible resources, knowledge, networks that are visible to some, but not to all, right? So how can we make visible what persists, what is still available? How can we make visible what has been lost because we haven't talked about this a lot, but it's not just the labor movement that was under attack. The student movement has been decimated in the United States through the same concerted attack, right? What has been lost? What resources and practices used to be commonplace? There used to be uh, nonviolent direct action trainers in every small community in larger city in the country in the United States uh, coming out of the 80s into the 90s, that's gone. So how can we make visible what's present? How can we make visible what's lost and that we what we might need again, right? Um, and make that available to everyone who is engaged in this larger struggle. So what's our duty in doing that? Okay, thank you. And
7: in some ways, Ben, your your question there um, prefigures a question from Greg Coleridge. Um, Greg, did you want to ask that uh, with your microphone, or should I read your question? You can just read it. So Greg asks, what movements are actively working for authentic macro structural systemic change and uh, address immediate felt needs in ways that reinforce one another? And um, I'm gonna let the panelists uh, take turns. It looks like, Jackie, did I see your hand up there? Go ahead, why don't you start?
5: I think uh, the most radical thing we can do in this era of globalized capitalism is build a commitment to place and local. Um, and that means a lot of things, depending on where we sit. Um, you can think about what it means in the university, this colonizing institution that, that extracts from cities and communities. Um, but what the human rights cities movement ends up doing and being is about securing people's basic needs. And as we're in this period of late capitalism entering a struggle Um, not for control of the means of production, but control of the means of survival, Um, what human rights cities end up being about is is how do we um, survive? And and not just as individuals, but how do we survive as local communities? And what's exciting about the way this movement has played out is, is it does invite people to think about themselves as inhabitants of a city and community, even academics. (laughs) <laughs> who get involved in it have to recognize that we live here and what happens in our city and how it develops matters for us and and, and it matters for our neighbors and we start to meet our neighbors and care about them in in new ways and um, it really is is the a totally counter hegemonic framework to globalized capitalism and really harks back to a lot of the ways of being in the world of pre-capitalist societies, indigenous peoples and, and the ideas of, of indigenous cultures certainly resonate there. Um, but the, the framework of, of really building a commitment to place and, and identity that's linked there as a counterweight to globalization, but also a, a way of thinking about how do we survive and thrive in, in a very different kind of world.
7: Okay. And uh, somebody else in the chat was saying that the um, mutual aid efforts, uh, particularly this person mentions DSA's mutual aid efforts, but I think other groups as well, um, very much address Greg's question. Also, uh, Leslie, do you want to speak about that at all?
6: I think, uh, I think I've think uh, i kind of spoken about it already, so I can pass it over to somebody else.
7: Anybody else wanna speak um, on the questions of um, movements that are actively working for uh, structural and systemic change and addressing immediately felt needs uh, at the same time?
1: I'll just add uh, some organizations really quickly. I think that the Cooperation Jackson Project, Cooperation Humboldt, these are the kinds of organizations that represent, uh, uh, I, I think, depth to the socialist turn. And uh, and they articulate cooperative organizations, local accountability, as well as immediately pose the problem of scale. Because whilst they are local uh, in terms of where they start, they analyze the problem as global, they are networked. And so I think that that's something really interesting to think about. I think, though, that also, uh, to, to plug DSA one more time, narrowing down on the Green New Deal, uh, Medicare for All and the PRO Act represents a, a qualitative change from our massive long lists of demands that uh, characterized us 20 years ago. Not that we've given up on those demands, those other demands, but that we've, we, we have effectively prioritized a certain set of demands as a big national movement and and that's new. Mm -hmm.
7: And on the issue of cooperatives, uh, someone else was asking about the benefit of encouraging people to form cooperatives. And then we got a whole bunch of of organizations mentioned in the chat here, which I will read for people that are watching this that don't have access to the chat, the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network, the New Economy Coalition, the Democracy Collaborative, the Next System Project, and the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, um, all different groups that are working on some of these issues. Um, Anybody else wanna speak to um, the uh, cooperatives uh, piece of this discussion?
8: I'll just very briefly mention that there are a number of uh, universities and departments in the states that are engaged in this project. So there was a Cooperation Santa Barbara that was just starting up when I left, led by faculty from Asian American Studies, Sociology, Global Studies, History, a number of different departments. That's actually going full steam ahead. Uh, Here at George Mason University, our Center for Social Science Research is about to launch publicly, we've already initiated it, something we're calling Democratizing Nova for Northern Virginia. Uh, I have a team of eight PhD students and four other members of the faculty that are working with me on that. And it's uh, basically about bringing the resources and the um, uh, sort of the know how that we can bring into uh, alignment with work that's already happening in the region to build up a democratic economy. And there are others.
7: Uh, and um, uh, Alex writes, UFT, a national network of networks, uh, led by people of color. Uh, and uh, the, there's a link here, uh, unitedfrontlinetable.org is the, uh, is the link in the chat. Um, Alex, do you want to come on and say anything else about that? okay
1: hey <laughs> sorry uh, just uh, just want to mention that it's a network uh, it's a national network that um, uh, is you know it's 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 playing a lot of inside ball but uh, you know being very
0: forthright about uh, anti-capitalist critique and and uh, you know just just
1: centering very much in the needs and, and interests of uh, frontline communities so uh, see if to have some legitimacy uh, first. <laughs> and, uh, and is, you know, uh, developing their, uh, their,
8: their platform, the, the, the platform is called a people's orientation to a regenerative economy. There's a link on that
7: website. Okay, thank you. Um, Joe, did you want to ask your question? Um, or should I voice it for you?
9: Am I the Joe in question here? I think so. Sorry, I've been very active in the chat. I'm not actually on top of which question you're referring Um, to. How do we change academic institutions? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, no, I mean, I'm, so I speak as a faculty member as well as a union, uh, an elected union representative of non-tenure track faculty at UMass Boston. And, uh, you know, we are an institution that claims to be, you know, a public urban institution or we are a public urban institution, but we claim to have a public urban mission and so one of the things that some of us are pushing for right now is actually um, it, you know, surveying our, our faculty, including non-tenure track faculty, to get a, like a holistic sense of the kind of service engagement and, um, and research, including community activist oriented research that many of our faculty are engaged with. So one, one subset of, of, of that broader mix is just the, literally the question of what counts as research on university campuses. You know, I mean, for those who are on a tenure line, right? What is actually institutionally encouraged, enabled, and what is disabled? I mean, I don't want to project some kind of romantic fantasy onto the professoriate, but I do think there's a, at least in my campus, I feel like there's a lot of untapped potential, or at least unconnected potential. You know, what I mean, a lot of siloization and fragmentation, and a kind of there's a way you can do radical scholarship that won't like get on the radar, right? As like Disruptive politics on campus. I just wonder I'm not saying bureaucratic uh, solutions on tenure committees are going to like fix the problem, but it might be like a small part of it. Like, what could we do to remove or at least lessen the barriers that hold people back and maybe even encourage, especially like newer faculty or newer, right, newer, newer hires to like become socialized into a culture where leftism isn't pr- just property, you know, for academic you know capital but it's like it can be like oh it can kind of come out of the closet and be like like actually appreciated in its own terms so okay and one more couple of
7: other university resources that are mentioned here uh, the uw university of wisconsin center for cooperatives uh, uwcc.wisc.edu and also the uh, California Center for Cooperative Development at UC Davis. So we have academic institutions that are providing uh, resources for cooperative development um, as, uh, as another way to uh, potentially build some of these movements. Um, we're just coming towards the end of our uh, conversation. And so I want to um, uh, ask all of our panelists if they have some closing comments about a minute each is really all that we have time for, but it's been, I think a really valuable and informative uh, discussion, but also shows uh, how much farther we have to go in these conversations. Uh, I think we've only touched the surface of so many um, different things, but maybe, we could start the people that haven't gotten a chance to talk in this last little bit, uh, Hillary, and then Shannon, maybe you could say a couple of words and then anyone else that wants to join in before we get to the top of the hour.
2: Uh, sure. I, and although I saw that Jackie um, had wanted to weigh in, I think on the question about uh, what do we do about uh, the academy on tying it to tangible movement building on the ground? Jackie, did you want to? So,
5: are you are you turning yeah, it over to me? I, I, um, I just, it's going to be a downer, but I think it's important for us to recognize that this crisis moment that we're in is, I mean, the conflicts are going to intensify on every front, and the university-industrial complex is deeply, um, uh, it's 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 going to collapse and it's gonna be painful in many ways. And and so I think we first have to recognize that and come to grips with it and, and realize that we can't keep doing business as usual um, in the academy and expect things to be like they were. Um, they won't. Um, So we have to figure out what that means. And I think naming the university industrial complex and understanding how it's working in our communities is really important because it it is part of the eds and meds and tech economies that's destroying the cities and communities that we live in. And it depends on all of the hierarchies that our movements are opposing and race is front and center there. So, you know, looking at the racial disparities in the student bodies and in the staffing and and pay scales in in the university structures and really taking those on um, and one of the lessons in the world social forums one of the conversations we had we learned that or we talked about the need for us to fight neoliberalism on our campuses and I don't think we've done that enough um, student debt is going to the bubble is going to collapse and and everything's going to come down with it so we have to unite with the students and help think about what that means and help them fight to um, be liberated from that owner's debt that they have. So just a few thoughts on. on yeah, that.
7: and also also worth looking at what's happening right now with the uh, the COVID pandemic and the, the financial downturn and the effect it's having on so many, uh, especially small universities and colleges. I've been watching the struggle at Ithaca College where they're seeing massive cuts. Uh, but you know, we've also seen the same thing here in Wisconsin uh, at, at the, some of the state schools, even before the um, uh, COVID pandemic uh, with, with cuts of departments and faculty and so on. Um, I, Shannon, I really wanna let you get in here uh, before we run out of time because you haven't had uh, a chance to speak in this last section. Um, uh, Any closing comments?
4: Sure, I mean, I'll try to thread together the seems like the last two themes which have to do with the academy and then also what this means in terms of taking on um, an anti capitalist approach, not only to academia, but also workers rights more generally and just for folks who don't know I, I'm actually speaking to you from a labor relations school where um, I think the word capitalism is few and far between in our conversations. And so I think that, especially from where I sit in the labor relations arena, I think we've had a lot of conversations about the extent to which our um, our field is dying um, and that the sooner that we can become more relevant, the sooner we can save ourselves, but also get with um, the, the more the, the the thorny question of what is the scholarly study of labor relations versus the relevant study of labor relations. And I think that's to put it very bluntly, but we have staff and faculty who are in our um, extension unit whose job is much more precarious than, than mine is, where I live in, in, the, in the resident side of things. And I think that Um, in terms of our ability to stay relevant, it's very much needing to look at the labor relations of academic workers themselves. But the other piece of that is also diversifying not only the pipeline to the tenure track um, arenas, and that goes from not only recruiting, but also retaining scholars of color, and also looking at the um, impact of, especially in Ivy League universities, imperatives towards a certain type of scholarship um, at the exclusion of others. So I think all of that's really important. I think Norm mentioned, for example, the things happening at Ithaca College, College, which is a liberal arts school here in our same town. And I think that also requires us to think through um, the shared fates that many uh, academic workers have, regardless of the, you know, hierarchy of educational institution. Um, I think Ithaca College is definitely seen as being in the shadow of Cornell, but um, many of the issues that they're facing are in, needs have to be necessarily in solidarity with that of, of other Ivy League workers and graduate students in particular. We've now had two failed graduate student campaigns. And it's been very interesting to see the um, kinds of solidarity that have emerged and uh, across certain disciplines and the extent to which even very what I would assume to be left of center progressive social scientists align themselves with a union busting um, positionality. So all of these things matter. And just to bring it finally back to my key theme, which is on um, immigration, this is a point that my um, colleague Sophia Opticar has looked at a lot in her work, which is the role of international scholars. And I think this has become increasingly relevant, especially as there have been cyclical attacks on H-1B workers currently on Chinese academics, etc. And um, finding a way to put those conversations in solidarity, not only with the, um, the conversations of US-based or US-origin workers, but also Um, more canonically immigrant students, including DACA recipients and all the rest, and not to allow um, a nativist um, approach, which is very strong in some aspects of our university to kind of divide and conquer. And I think those forms of solidarity are important, not only in terms of academic labor, but how we frame um, the big issues of the future of the university. So uh, thanks everyone for a great conversation.
7: Okay, thank you very much, and that pretty much brings us to the end. We're we're not governed by the uh, the commercial clock of of broadcast television, so we we have run a minute over the uh, the top of the hour. But I won't pause for a station ID here. Um, rather, I'll say one last thing, which is I have been in the middle of a, a another chat, a direct message chat here during our conversation with somebody about electoral politics, and I think that. Uh, from this conversation we haven't really talked about electoral politics at all during this evening Uh, but one thing i think that is very important is that the american people as a whole that is the people of the united states uh need to understand that elections don't just happen once every four years and uh i think i'll leave it at that and i'm going to hand it back to uh for uh some closing remarks
1: Thank you, Norm, for so ably guiding us through this difficult second hour of conversation, even though we're not guided by the commercial clock, I think we are guided by the um, finite nature of our attention span, so thank you for for working with us through this. I'd also like to thank all of our participants, Bill Fletcher, who unfortunately had to leave early, Shannon Gleason, Hilary Lazar, Ben Manske, Jackie Smith, Norm, of course, and uh, Leslie Wood. I should also add that uh, the topics we've raised, including the one about electoral politics, are topics that we regularly address on the show that we normally do at this hour called Shelter and Solidarity. It's a twice monthly online show, and I invite you to visit our website at shelterandsolidarity.org. The other organizations that uh, co-sponsored this event, on Encontro Cinco, a movement building project in downtown Boston, the Liberty Tree Foundation, an organization serving the democracy movement, Hardball Press, a publisher of working class writers, you can find them at hardballpress.com, and of course Socialism and Democracy, a journal that brings together the worlds of scholarship and activism, theory and practice to examine in depth uh, core issues and public mo- popular movements of our time. Thank you everyone. Good night.